Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. One of the things readers of R.J. Rush Jr.'s materials will often comment is on how prophetic his writings are for today. And if you think about it, the entire Bible is prophetic. The Bible tells us what will happen if we obey God, what will happen if we disobey God. And so Rush Dooney's strong point is understanding the scripture in terms of what will be the result on individuals, families, churches, and civil governments in terms of the outworkings of obedience or disobedience. So Charles, we talked about the fact that we were going to discuss one of his essays written back in February of 1969. And I would have to say, and I I know you agreed when I suggested the topic, that this is pertinent for our day. And the essay was entitled, The Governing Class. And the first thing that I think people might think of is, must there always be a governing class? Is that something that's even biblical? So to start off our discussion, Charles, does the Bible speak to the reality and necessity of a godly governing class? Well, yes, it does. And in the uh, essay and article you referred to, Rushduni lays a foundation for that discussion. And frankly, we see it all through scripture in terms of the nation of Israel, the people of God, even within the family structure itself. Of course, there's a governing class if we can stretch the definition in that way. So the question then becomes not do we have to have one, but the question becomes what sort of governing class are we going to have? And in terms of that, and I'm sure you hear it in your circles, I certainly hear it in mine. The problem we have today are the people who are in charge. They're in charge of the civil government. They're in charge of the media. They're in charge of the universities. And Rushduni would argue they got there because society was basically in agreement with them. So if that's the case, then how all of a sudden do we have people saying, we don't like what they're doing, this is wrong, and and all the permutations of outrageous decision-making? Well, part of what's built into this, and I think this has something to do with the timing of his article, many people listening to this podcast may not even know or remember the sort of discussions and cultural upheavals that were taking place in 1969 when he wrote this. Although that doesn't necessarily change at all the relevance of what he's written, because at base of this discussion for people who wonder out loud, do we have to have one, is, I think, a hidden resentment against those who are better off than they are. Somewhere I was reading something he wrote just recently, and he pointed out, as he did many times, that it is the habit of lesser men to resent those who are who are better than they are. And in this essay, he refers to a professor of psychology at University of California, Santa Cruz, who had written an article uh, or a book uh, called Who Rules America? And he gives a definition of who are or what is a governing class. And he quotes this man as referring to a social upper class which owns a disproportionate amount of the country's wealth, receives a disproportionate amount of a country's yearly income, 
and it goes on from there, but the key word over and over again is disproportionate. And Dr. Rustini raises a question after he quotes that is, well, if they have earned this, if this is a part of their hard work and they're being industrial in the broad sense, then why is it disproportionate? And I think that, get, again, gets to the heart of the matter that there is a certain attitude of resentment, but but gets also back to the key question is, if this is unavoidable, and I don't know of any society where there haven't been people who are better off in one way than another, of course, that seems to be the dream of the Marxist to get to that point. Of, of course, it's a bad dream. It's an impossible dream. Then what is it that will constitute a good or acceptable governing class? And he points out that win, lose, or draw, people rise to the top when they demonstrate ability, drive, etc. So the fact that we might have a governing class now made up of people who, and I could name names, but it's kind of irrelevant, who have a lot of money and fund political campaigns and put certain people in positions of authority. There's this underlying view among Christians that that in itself is wrong. In other words, well, if we were in power, we would have to not suppress other people's information, or we would have to say everybody is welcome at the table. But why is that? Does God really say we need a big tent and everybody's welcome at the table in so much as their ideas are valuable, even if at their core, they're ungodly? Well, the problem is uh, certainly no, God's law doesn't stipulate that. But the problem has been, at least in terms, I think, in terms of the history of our country, is that biblical law has not been followed carefully enough, or if at all. And so built into God's standards of justice are, say, for example, the proper treatment of strangers and the alien who is outside the covenant. There are boundaries and there are acceptable ways that those people can and um, should be treated or not treated. But unfortunately, that sometimes is thrown aside for something more based on humanism. But I think in terms of the history of this country, I don't know if I could place a date. Uh, I know that Dr. Rastuni wrote about this, what I'm getting ready to refer to, and so did Gary North. But there became a, a Freemasonic influence. It's the Masonic idea of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, that everybody's welcome at the table and, and all that kind of broad-minded sounding thing. That That is not a biblical idea. There is absolutely a biblical idea about how everyone is to be treated according to God's standards of justice and righteousness, but that doesn't eliminate the fact that some people may be more blessed by God than others in terms of their faithfulness to him or the unfaithfulness of another person. And so uh, the the sin of envy, the resentment that we have against someone who is doing better than we are, who's smarter than we are, whatever the case may be, that's a uh, at the, as I said, I think at the root of all of this suspicion or resentment of those who are better off. Now, of course, that also raises the issue of for people who find themselves in those categories, then what ought they to be doing in relation to those who are less fortunate than they, not necessarily in a poverty situation? And again, that's where the standard of truth and righteousness is an infallible one if it if it is based on God's word. So you have people who have experience, money, and influence. And Rajduni points out that as a governing class, that governing class will reflect the good or evil direction and impulses that are dominant in society. 
So how many people do you think would say, well, the reason we have all this aberration between transgender and drag queens and, and the kinds of economic policies that are in place, that's not what I'm about. That's not what most people I know am about. And yet, if that's not what they're about, why would they tolerate something and just complain about it rather than do something to alter it? Well, I think that's a very good question, and I'm not sure I know the answer to it. Other than, again, there's an operating procedure that is not based on what God says about how we are to treat others and how everyone within a godly social order is to behave and interact. You know, God's law stipulates there are certain rules and regulations for handling money, for treating the poor, or handling relations with the poor, criminals, uh, people who violate the standards of justice. And once those are thrown aside or ignored or not even known about, then something has to take its place. And that leads us into the position where we find ourselves today. Now, you brought up the the sexual issue. I've seen uh, a recent video of uh, one of the so-called megachurches somewhere. I, I don't know where it was. I think somewhere here in the east. And uh, the man who was the pastor was preaching a sermon. And th- I mean, this is purports to be an evangelical type church. And he in a strange method of what I'll call hermeneutical yoga, twisted the scriptures to basically say, if you oppose homosexual marriage, then you're committing blasphemy. You're you're committing sins against the Holy Spirit. Because the, the desire for two people of the same sex to get married is a desire for love. And so, therefore, he had this weird way of equating it with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, therefore, if you oppose gay marriage, then you're opposing the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the kind of poor understanding of what God's word says that has led us to uh, on that particular issue, particular where we are. You know, if you don't study church history, you will miss out on the fact that there have always been controversies within the church. However, the controversies were not of the ilk they are now. Are men women or women men? Should two people of the same sex be joined in marriage? They were attacks on the Trinity, attacks on the incarnation and Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man. But interestingly enough, as people are unable to spot the underlying heresies in a lot of modern think, they do what Rush Dooney calls fighting atom bombs with pop guns. Right. The the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the offensive weapon that we're given. And as an offensive weapon, it's supposed to be used. And yet there are too many people who are embarrassed about God's directives in the Old and New Testaments, and they want to make it something other than what God says. And so is it any surprise that you have people who don't value God's word above any other word that they'll be upset with the constitution not being followed or wait a minute, you're not allowed to do that according to the law. I mean, mankind has been disregarding God's law from the beginning. And so why should this be a surprise? Why did you think the people who got into power because of their hatred of God and their ingenuity of placing themselves in the right place? Why did you think they would think justice and fairness were important. Yeah, it's sort of like someone who isn't smart enough to realize that if you hit yourself in the head with a hammer, it's going to hurt and probably do damage to you. And they keep doing it and can't figure out why their head hurts. 
Uh, so there's there's a a total lack of awareness, and they don't realize that if they aren't using God's standard, they're inevitably going to end up in a place where things have gone haywire. Now, one of the things that he rightly points out in this essay is the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, this issue of resentment, it also creates an attitude of suspicion. And he goes into the issue of conspiracy, where those who are in what might be called a governing class are said to be conspiring against everyone to do certain things. Now, that's certainly a topic for our time. It always has been in one sense. And I believe the Bible very clearly addresses the issue of there are conspiracies and evil men plot them. But just because, you know, someone is in a governing class, that doesn't automatically mean they're involved in something like that. And the thing that he addresses on that note is that people who get interested in pursuing this line of thinking and who, again, rightfully want to understand what those who outside the teachings of Scripture have planned for those who are lesser than they are, the, the, the conspiracies, the plans, the schemes that those in the governing class may have that are profoundly unbiblical uh, seem to take on a sovereign authority of their own where people, if they would examine what they really think as they get into studying conspiracies and the machinations of evil men, whether they be a governing class or not, they really need to ask themselves, do, do I truly believe God is sovereign or is this conspiracy sovereign? Is, you know, these wealthy elites who rule this particular, um, uh, international organization or whatever it may be, uh, they certainly have attitudes of pretending to be sovereign. But that doesn't mean they are. And we need to be cautious, Dr. Rostuni, I think, is telling us that we don't sort of tacitly agree with them by casting their schemes as something that's inevitably going to displace everything else. Right. It gives them a lot of power and it almost makes the point. If you say God is sovereign and he foreordains whatever comes to pass, that would also indicate that our present situation in 2023 is not outside God's control. But then the question might be, well, then why does he allow it? Well, if you don't work back from, well, God disciplines those he loves and judgment begins in the house of the Lord. So the first thing you ought to do instead of digging up dirt on these other folks is to figure out what it is that is going on in your personal life, family life, the social life that you have, that's contrary to God's word. Until you do that, I don't see any reason why asking God to deliver us from the bad guys is going to have any sort of godly ears, if you might say, if we're willfully disobeying him or being ignorant of his laws. And so when we say it's the, you know, power elites, it's the World Economic Forum, it's this, that, and the other thing, we're giving them so much power as opposed to God stirs them up to purify his people so that we recognize that they are not sovereign, he is sovereign. And as long as we have this idea that it's the bad guys we have to go after, well, it's not that we don't oppose them, it's that we have to be opposing them on biblical grounds, otherwise it's just a different brand of humanism. Yeah, and he, he brings up something else in regard to this, and I want to try to get at it this way. It would be like somebody deciding, some some man or group of men deciding that the uh, the main source of all the problems in the world are women. 
And if we just figure out some way to get rid of women or vice versa, women say the problem, some group of women saying the problem is men. Well, no, inevitably you are going to have one or the other, despite what the, the maniacs in our society today are saying. And so the correlation I'm making is that he makes the point that having a governing class is unavoidable. So the question is, what ought we to be doing in terms of obeying and being obedient to God to make sure or to ensure that God can bless the type of governing class that will inevitably be there? Because if our community, uh, our church, um, our state, whatever it is, are governed by a class of men who are evil and are predisposed toward doing anything and everything outside of God's law, well, what is the root of that? You know, were these people ever taught from childhood what it means to obey the Lord in all areas of life? That's a serious question that I think you're getting at, too, with the previous point you made. Yes. As as he says in the essay, and I don't want to act like these thoughts are original to me because they're not, he said that the governing class will reflect the good or evil directions and impulses dominant in a society. And it's important, therefore, to do things that will produce and train a superior class. And secondly, to produce and train a vast body of people who will want the leadership that new superior class can provide. So I think back to a number of presidential election cycles ago, um, there was a candidate who was not preaching things that would tickle people's ears. He was talking about having to pay attention to what's wrong with our currency, what's wrong with our economic system. But quite frankly, Charles, people didn't really want to hear that. Please don't tell me things that will upset me. Tell me things that will make me feel good. And as long as a governing class recognizes that all you have to do is present things that will make people feel like, oh, wow, life will be easier for me. That's why they keep getting elected. That's why they're still able to cheat where they cheat. And most people will say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Everybody cheats. In other words, why should God bless a people who really don't care whether righteousness is utmost in everybody's mind? Yeah, and I want to give a, a personal example, if I may, of what I think at least was a case of someone who might be considered in, if not a governing class, then an upper class for sure. This is an individual that uh, I used to know and work for in a roundabout way. I'm being purposely vague here. Uh, when I was in seminary, and this individual had a connection to a major corporation in this country that if I mentioned it, I think most people would understand who, um, the, what that company is and, and the products that made it famous. This man's father had founded this company and he, he was very, very wealthy. And I know for a fact personally and from other people who were again indirectly employed by him that he was profoundly generous with the wealth that he had. I, uh, I well recall an occasion when, uh, I was working for him that he gave me some money unsolicited by me. I mean, I wasn't expecting anything like this from him. But um, it was it was occasion of a holiday, and my family uh, was way out off in another state. I didn't have an opportunity to go home for the holidays, and he stopped in to say hello to me. And so before he turned, he said, "Oh, I've got I'm going to give you this," and uh, it was a check for a certain amount of money. And I, I I was just dumbstruck 
because not it was just completely unexpected. And you know, it's it's so marvelous how the Lord works these things out because you might think, well, what if somebody you didn't really know all that well showed up or you ran into them and said, Oh, by the way, here you go, I wanted to give you this money. You might think, hot dog, now I can go buy that car, I can do this. But the impact is maybe just the opposite. I mean, it was profoundly humbling, not in a bad way, but it gave me a sense of this is really what grace is like. But that experience has stayed with me all these years because here was a man who, by the way, I happen to know was raised in a Presbyterian church, if that makes any difference. Okay, there are plenty of bad Presbyterians. I understand that. But I think there was something in his background, I'll say a biblical background, that led him to handle his status in life in a way that I think the Lord would bless and be pleased with. And so I think that's an example of, I may be reading more into the situation that was really there, I don't know, but I can't help but believing that this man was raised in a family and taught by his parents, his father in particular, that you have a privilege. You have been born into a situation where you have certain privileges that others don't have, and therefore that creates a set of responsibilities for you that you're to handle in a way that glorifies God. And near as I could tell, he was doing that. So what's the answer? How do you get a new governing class? Well, I think we've seen it. It's been going on since Dr. S. Juni wrote things like the Messianic Character of American Education, identifying they have a Messianic mission, but it's not towards the God of the Bible. Intellectual Schizophrenia. These are books that basically show what happens when Christians abandon their world and life view and allow generations to be taught by those who hate Christ. So the very fact that universities and media and all this are more obvious now than before anti-Christian, they don't even have to hide it anymore. They hid it for many decades, but Charles, I think you'd agree, they're not hiding it now. Why are they emerging now if everybody was, oh, they'll go along with what we say and it doesn't matter? The same reason why in biblical history we see that the pharaoh of Egypt saw that he didn't want to have to face the children of Israel as an enemy. So what he started to do was to find ways to obliterate them. So if we want God on our side, we have to call out to God and say, we have sinned and this is this is our response to our sin. We're going to pull our children out of state schools. We're not going to support universities. I don't care, you know, if they have a good rating and, you know, the highest high academics go in there. If they're going to sabotage the Christian faith or try to sabotage the Christian faith of your children, don't support them. Don't give them money. If you know a business is in radical support of things that are contrary to the Bible, you don't have to organize a nationwide boycott. You can just decide, I'm not going to spend my money there. And then out of this environment, you'll see people say, well, we can provide alternatives. And we do see alternatives rising up. But the sad part, Charles, is you'll have believers who'll say, yeah, but they're so small. I mean, it's like, what difference will it make if I support them? Well, you forget the fact that Jesus is known for multiplying the loaves and the fishes. So if you're honestly supporting something that supports the word of God, we can expect and pray for the multiplication of our efforts. But if you don't start and you just decide that Goliath is just way too big, 
Well, then you'll be like the account before David showed up and they're all sitting there cowering. I think today we have a lot of people who had been cowering and now are like, what are they doing? This is wrong. They just have to take their efforts and support godly alternatives. Yes. And as Dr. Rastuni continually pointed out, the foundation of biblical law and all government is self-government. And if we don't start there and how we govern ourselves according to God's standards, if that base is not touched, if that point is not addressed at the beginning, then everything that flows from that avoidance or that mistake is going to have powerful ramifications and implications. Another way of saying that in the context of, say, school and education is don't be surprised if you put your children in Caesar's school, they all come back as Romans. I don't know who originally said that, but that's the, the point that is being made there. So in terms of personal sanctification, you know, we are to govern ourselves according to God's moral standards, but they see that extends far beyond the individual. Uh, the foundation of a godly community, which means the foundations of producing a godly governing class, is that people are governing themselves according to these biblical principles. And so the the opportunities for evil to flourish under that kind of circumstance, if it's being pursued thoroughly and properly, will be minimal. Now, he makes the point in the essay, referring again now to, to his time in 1969 when he wrote this, but it, it could equally be applied now, and even more so, He says our present schools, colleges, universities, churches, and foundations are essentially geared to producing a humanistic leadership. Now, why is that? Well, because that's what people were taught. They 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 were given over to that, and you know there are there have been enough homeschooling families and Christian schools since he wrote those words that there's plenty of people who can come back and say, well. Wait a minute, you know, I know so-and-so went to this school or homeschooled, and they certainly turned out this way, and that's not all that great. Well, that may be so, but we have to understand that putting your children in a Christian school or in a homeschool, where for four, five, six hours of the day, they're having studies and pursuing education uh, according to biblical foundations, but then for the rest of the evening and, and rest of the day, they're being turned over to ungodly entertainment, video games, internet access that uh, is evil, or if they've been provided with a curriculum of study that is based on humanistic principles. It it doesn't have to be drag queen story hour type stuff, but uh, if it's based on the implications of, say, Greek thought, which has to do with the sovereignty of man in some areas, then that's the seed. That's all Satan needs to cause you know, these kind of things to flourish that will lead to the kind of situations where we find ourselves today, specifically in the area of who are the governing class. I mean, I invite our listeners to, in your own mind, regardless of what state you live in, if you're in these United States, uh, let's say you are, who among your governing class in your state would you name as solid biblical Christians who understand even remotely what we're talking about, or even on, in, on a federal level in terms of presidents and vice presidents and you know pe- people on that level. Who, who among them, not even not just now, but going back decades, would you point to as saying, well, that was a solid biblical Christian? We're always told you get the leadership, a society gets the leadership it deserves and what it requires. And even though people may bemoan it, 
when asked to establish a new people and a new leadership and what that will entail, a lot of people don't want to go there. I don't want to give up sports. I don't want to give up an impressive Ivy League resume because the most important thing is getting a good job after I leave college. So they've shifted the idea, start a family, build strong families. That will improve things. A lot of people will have the idea, well, if I just get notoriety or if I just establish myself in my field, whatever my field is, that will change things. But often those people just get silenced in their field. So we have to basically say we're not going to play in this playground anymore and establish the seedbed of what will happen. If you expect that it's going to happen by the end of the year, then you will be disappointed. But think back. Rush Dooney was writing this in 1969. There's a lot of years that have transpired. And I would say he was saying that the schools and colleges, university, churches, and foundations were humanistic. They're humanistic on steroids now because now they're promoting programs that the average person says, this is crazy. How on earth could anybody agree with this? But they don't realize that they had they have nothing to fight against. It's like they are trying to fight atom bombs with pop guns. Yeah, it's a process that uh, I think uh, Cornelius Van Til referred to as becoming epistemologically self-aware or self-conscious. So, in other words, your presuppositional foundations of knowledge inevitably will progressively produce the kind of results that will either show the godly foundation uh, of your epistemology, your knowledge, your theory of knowledge, or the ungodly foundation of it. And that's certainly an example of what he was talking about. And I, I want to swing back to something we said earlier about the fact that, you know, people who are in the governing class, especially if they've been industrious and they've worked hard to get where they are, and, you know, they, they are in a position, quote, of governing authority in, in whatever sphere that may be, that we can expect that to be the result that's built into a society that follows God's standards of rules and justice in terms of money and work and, and those kind of things. But, you know, I remember hearing someone say some years ago that government and business are very different in that in, in a free market business environment, those who are industrious, those who do work hard, and those who do, I'm adding this part of it, uh, who follow God's standards of just weights and measures, for example, they do rise to the top. And, and the people who don't succeed, the people who, who stay down toward the bottom are generally those who are not so very industrious or, or in, in some other way, not able to or willing to pursue that level of excellence. But the point was in government, it's just the opposite. You know, you've, you've got the, the, the losers who are the ones who go to the top and the industrious often are kicked down below. And that's one year's in government is inevitably in such poor, poor condition. So, you know, he, he makes the point, Dr. Rustini does in the essay about the, there being a, a natural aristocracy of talent that rises to the top in society. And it, it's congenial to whatever that society's moral bent is. So I think we should remember that and also remember in terms of how we engage this along the lines that we've been talking about is that as one of my favorite authors wrote many years ago, the, the truly unfortunate people in life are those who continue to play the game with opponents who've long ago abandoned the rules. So we, we need to be wise as serpents, as Jesus exhorted us to be, 
in terms of how we interact with those around us, especially those who aspire to positions of rulership or governing authority who have very, very bad motivations. But whether you have an atomic bomb or a pop gun, the, the, the solution to that problem is raising up a godly generation and being willing to wait and being willing to understand that this is a generational process. It doesn't happen overnight. The, the catastrophic mode of imposing things, that's the, the evil humanistic way, the communistic way, the Marxist way. And it, it always inevitably leads to chaos and destruction. Humanism is sterile. It, it doesn't produce godly offspring. And so what are the products of our modern school system? What not delay marriage? Don't have children because we're overpopulated. I, I talked to a Christian woman, identifies herself as a Christian, said, I would not bring a child into this world. And I said, why? Oh, just how terrible it is. I said, well, then you're doing Satan's plan. I mean, in times past, he had people throw their babies in the Nile. He had trying to get midwives to kill the babies upon being born. Well, now we have abortion. And so, yeah, make sure that Christians do not have children because, you see, we would be bringing them into a world that's terrible. Ipso facto, it will always be terrible. Or I'll bring them into this world and they will be the godly leaders who usurp the, the false heirs, you might say, and proclaim the rule and majesty of Jesus Christ. So when you have this view that, you know, it's all bad, it'll continue to be bad. And the only way out of it is if somebody kidnaps us out of it. And now we go to a paradise where we don't have problems. That is part of the humanistic indoctrination that has even made itself prevalent in the church. You know, we're more than conquerors. So what does that mean? Well, we have to convey to those we teach the idea that you have a responsibility and we should be encouraging young Christian people to find a mission in life that God has called them to do, and then to find someone who will help along the way and have children. I know that sounds very old-fashioned, but in actual fact, it is the way in which you grow. It's a way you grow the kingdom by raising godly offspring. Yeah, I think if people of a certain age, meaning yours and mine, or maybe even older, <laughs> would reflect on how life was in their day, where typically in most uh, American communities, there was a, a level of nominal biblical faith, re regardless of how strident it was. People generally obeyed the the uh, the spirit of the Ten Commandments if they didn't obey it for other other reasons. But how did that happen? Well, it happened because in families, parents taught their children, you don't steal, uh, you don't lie. You go down the list. This is how you will behave. And people uh, obeyed that. They didn't, they didn't go to public school to get taught that. The churches to some extent reinforced it, uh, maybe more than just to some extent. But the whole idea is that, that people were taught this on the ground. They were taught this, their first form of government, which is family government. Now, I, um, I was reflecting on this in preparation for my, uh, resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday message this week. How that when Jesus appeared to, spoke to, excuse me, his followers, uh, before his ascension, he told them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he said, you go and you make the nations my disciples. And then the apostle John wrote in Revelation, 
that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. So I was thinking, what would be the, uh, uh, what happened from that? Well, those people to whom those words were spoken and their spiritual, if not biological offspring over a period of centuries eventuated in the Christianization of the known world of the day. What was left of the Roman Empire? Paganism was done away with. Christianity, for whatever uh, faults the versions of it may have been, uh, predominated throughout the known world of the day. And I thought to myself, well, what, what might happen if the Great Commission was given for the very first time in our time? Well, I think it's reasonable to speculate that if Jesus spoke to a modern group of evangelicals and said, all authority has been given unto me, go and make disciples of the nations, the immediate response would be to circle the wagons and wait for the rapture. We, we have no reason to think otherwise. In other words, there would be a great inactivity rather than a ferocious, in the best sense of the term, mission to go forward and proclaim this great truth. And that is eventually what produces godly leadership, godly governing class, and people on all levels of society who are working like fine components of a machine because they're all working according to the same plan, which is the spread of the kingdom message throughout the world. So when you were talking, what I thought of was compromise. When when Christians decide that they can have their feet in both camps, they're compromising. As soon as you give up any ground that the Bible says belongs to Christ, you've compromised. And so instead of debating things which are now being debated in the public square, Christians should say there's no debate about this issue. Marriage is between a man and a woman. God says so at the outset of Scripture. It's obvious from our observation. But the more we dance with I'm going to try to persuade people that they should obey God. I, I think we've lost our, you know, Jesus didn't say go out and have coffee with people and find common ground. And then, you know, you give a little, they give a little bit, and eventually you'll end up with what I want. No, he said, go make them my disciples. Well, to be Jesus's disciples, unfortunately today, I don't know that people are very clear on what that means. But to be identified a Christian in the early church, you had to take a baptismal vow that you were vowing to uphold certain truths uncompromisingly. And the people who took that baptismal vow often saw their fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord martyred for it. So instead of saying, oh, yeah, I want this as long as it doesn't impinge on my life, um, I think of a lot of the doctors during the whole COVID thing that knew it was wrong, but wouldn't speak up because they wanted to be able to get paid to still pay their mortgage, or they wanted to be able to keep their license. Well, what's it going to be like when they stand before the Lord and say, these are all my reasons. I, I don't think it will turn out well. And that's what I think needs to be conveyed in producing a godly leadership, because ideas in and of themselves need good ground to grow. And in this same essay we're talking about, Rush Dooney talks about how Karl Marx was sort of a disorganized guy. What he had to say was profound, but he wasn't the one who made it so that Marxism proliferated. It was 
smart slash evil men like Lenin that were able to take these ideas and look at how people could be manipulated. Well, why could they be manipulated? Because they didn't know God's word. So when they're being sold something or presented with something that sounds good to them, their first question isn't, how does this line up with the word of God? Yes, and staying with that context, the one group of people that Lenin realized early on who would generally not be manipulated were the Christians in Russia. And, uh, of course, Marx, he thought it all was going to go down in Germany, uh, apparently. But when Lenin mounted this effort, he recognized those who were coming from a different law order would not be so eager to jump on board with one that was so clearly anti-Christian. And so that gets back to the very heart of the matter that maybe we can sum up and remind everyone that Dr. Rushduni said that in, in order to address this issue of, okay, if, if a governing class is unavoidable, how do we ensure that we have a good quote unquote governing class? Well, that starts with having a, 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 a relatively speaking, a new understanding of what it means to live and educate people. I mean, new in terms of what we've known in this society for many, many decades, which is a humanistic based education. And I think a caveat needs to be issued as I've thought about this, that, you know, one of the solutions that we hear a lot, and it's, you see this especially in the media, people need to remember that whoever is your favorite so-called conservative talk show host, well, they have a job of promoting their programs and talking about issues in a certain way that keep the ratings up. I'm not saying they aren't sincere in other areas. But, for example, if I want to accomplish something that is a direct threat to the humanistic order, Maybe I'm not so smart by standing out on the street corner and announcing this is what I plan to do. I can be far more effective as I just simply begin to do it in my own family. You know, uh, you, you don't have to organize some big group and put out a Facebook ad and say, this is what we're doing. Let's meet over here tomorrow. Because I can just about guarantee you that if you do something like that, well, there may be people who show up for that that appear to be one thing, but they're quite something else. So just simply and powerfully begin within the sphere of your own life's influence, which generally means your family. If you aren't married and have a family, it means your own personal life. Begin to governing governing yourself according to God's standards and wait for the Lord to bless those efforts as you remain faithful. Let me add just one thing in terms of providing an alternative education. One must be very, very aware of the fact that there are a lot of so-called Christian curriculums that espouse to be categorically different than what goes on in state schools. And by and large, it's probably true because in the state of schools, there's a lot of social engineering going on that we know about, you know, trying to groom people for certain points of view. But then there are private schools that don't necessarily indulge in that but they're still indulging in humanism. And there's a trend, and I've heard of it. It wasn't so much popular while I was homeschooling my children, but this classical conversations, that's the name of it. And I imagine that there are well-meaning people who actually appreciate it and have benefited from it. But I wonder how much studying the ancient Greek pagans and humanists is truly beneficial to reconstructing a society on a biblical framework. Oftentimes the explanation is, well, we need to understand what these people said. 
Well, I would be fine with that if, in fact, they started off with this is what's contrary to God's law. This is what the Apostle Paul said was contrary in biblical thought to what Plato, Aristotle, Socrates were saying. So it's still this allure of academic excellence and that that's more important than integrity and ethics. And I have quizzed more than a few young people who came out of classical Christian schools. Are they morally upright compared to their counterparts in the state schools? Yes, but they like the philosophy of Plato. They like the philosophy of Aristotle, and they don't see how it's in direct opposition to the triune God. So I I do believe, Charles, we have a lot of work to do, and we have to get people to see that many times the biblical perspective can be counterfeited. After all, that's how it became acceptable to have a Christian people put their children into public schools because there was a counterfeit presented. So it's not enough to say, oh, well, everybody's doing this. Parents have a responsibility. People who are about to go for higher education have a responsibility not to say, I'll let the enemies of God teach me. Yes, the bottom line is it's God's law or chaos. Yeah, and I think people have to, maybe things have to get bad enough. Like I just heard that there's a country that to the north of us that is now proposing a law or actually has established a law that says you can't even criticize lifestyles and practices. And if you criticize it, you're subject to a hefty fine. Sounds an awful lot like the first century when Rome recognized that Christians were a threat. We've been recognized as a threat now. And I think that's why the heat is being turned up. That doesn't mean we back down. It means we intensify our efforts to be faithful. Yes. And as I said a moment ago, to be as wise as serpents, to recognize that the Lord calls us to be industrious, to be wise in the sense of knowing how to accomplish the things that he's called us to do. And to, you know, exist in uh, very, very trying circumstances with those who are, as I said earlier, in the process of becoming epistemologically self-conscious. And in the case of the current governing class, that means that they are in the process of declining and ruining themselves. And we've got to be ready to replace what happens when the decline materializes. Not to rejoice that everything's getting better and better because we won't be here to experience it. Rejoice that God is judging and we should be ready to take up his mantle. Yes. Thanks for the conversation, Charles. As always, I hope we've given people things to think about. As do I. Thank you, Andrea. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how to reach us. And we look forward to your comments and questions and suggestions. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.